Everyone who knows me knows that my dogs are never short on outfits. I buy leashes and collars like some people buy shoes and handbags. And my favorite collar is Iggy's custom-made Paco collar. Paco collars are 100% handmade from scratch by an amazing staff of artists, and the quality really is unparalleled. My dogs can't have collars that don't withstand wear and tear. They hike, they swim, they roll on dead stuff. These collars are guaranteed to last a lifetime, and they're designed to be worn by active dogs like mine. Iggy's collar is perfect for her. It's got purple stones, stars, and a beautiful design. There are literally thousands of design options to choose from, but don't worry. The staff at Paco loves helping customers pick out the best collar for their pets. That's exactly what they did when I went to their booth with Iggy. And they make stuff for humans too, so get over to PacoCollars.com and buy the best collar you've ever had, and don't forget to enter promo code COGDOG for free shipping. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Today is all about Felix, and because it's all about Felix, it's about running young dogs, training young dogs, trialing run do- young dogs. Um, he's about to turn three, and I still consider him very young. I know a lot of people are on kind of different timelines from me for agility, so just hear me out. If you think three isn't a baby, that's cool know that where Felix is and his education uh, very much makes him a baby and a young dog. And he's had a short agility career so far. He's been out at a handful of trials, um, mostly USDAA with a couple of AKC trials kind of thrown in that were local and nearby. Um, and he's been to two USDAA regionals. He has not you know, kind of run in any of the big dog stuff, although he was on a team at one regional. Um, But he's been in those kinds of big environments. And I just want to talk about my observations in his career so far, because I think that there are some interesting ones. And I'm allowing those observations to inform my future competitive decisions and training decisions with him. And I think that's what's really the important thing. If we have our own agenda, which we always do and always will, we sometimes let that agenda overshadow um, the actual thing in front of us, the actual dog in front of us. And I think that's a dangerous path to go down that we definitely want to be avoiding. So the first thing that happened, the first trial that he was entered in, uh, two-day USDAA trial, pretty sure he was entered in three or four runs total on jumpers, snooker, probably gamblers. So I knew I didn't want to enter him in standard or any tournaments. I just wanted to bring him out as a test, see where we were, see what more training I needed to do. And everything looked pretty much as I expected. But as the weekend went on, um, over the course of three runs, I didn't have a start line stay left. So (laughs) run number one, he had a beautiful stay. 
uh, run number two, he got up and walked and he was walking towards me. Um, and I saw him doing that. So I asked him to sit and he did. And then I released him and he ran onto the first jump. Um, and then run number three, he couldn't stay at all. I asked him to sit. I started to move. He moved. I asked him to sit again. I started to move. He moved again. And I chose to just go on looking at it as very much a training error and something I needed to go back and fix and something that I didn't need to fight with him about in that moment. So he wasn't entered again for probably another month, but he did have a seminar um, pretty close to that trial, his first seminar. And so um, I knew that this start line thing could be a thing. And so I went to the seminar, I asked him to stay, he couldn't stay at all. Um, absolutely, he wasn't even running off and taking obstacles. He just could not stay where I put him. So I turned to the presenter who happened to be a very good friend of mine. And I said, I'm just not going to ask him to stay today. And she said, sounds good to me. And we figured it out. And I just ran with him on every sequence. And if I needed to start with, you know, kind of from a different spot so that I could do that, then I did. Didn't worry about it. Meanwhile... Um, he had another seminar, same presenter coming up about a week later and I worked on it and I didn't work on it with corrections. I worked on it with reinforcement. So I just built the reinforcement history for that behavior. Um, I did use my strategic reinforcement. So I put a toy behind him and cued him to get the toy behind him, um, about half the time. And then the other half the time I'd release him to go to the course. So went back, worked on that, and I'm very happy to say he had his stay beautifully intact a week later. And ever since then, he's been able to stay in trials. I knew the first time I let out in a trial after this whole thing went down, um, I was prepared to, I was prepared for him to break essentially. And if he did, I just wasn't going to ask him for another start line the rest of the trial, but he didn't. And he hasn't since. Um, he has had very solid start lines ever since. He's been in multiple trials. And it's a perfect example of removing the behavior from the problematic context and building up reinforcement history for that behavior and then putting the behavior back into context and seeing if the reinforcement history that you built was enough to outweigh the pressure of that context essentially. And so when people really struggle with certain behaviors in trial environments only and not in other environments, that's because uh, the reinforcement history for that behavior is not strong enough to hold up to the pressure that you're asking for it in. I'm sorry, the pressure of the environment in which you're asking for it. And I think that's not how we think of it. We think of it as, okay, we've got the behavior in training. Now we will have it in trialing. If we don't, we will punish, we will correct, we will leave the ring, etc. Um, and, or if we don't, the dog's got a quote-unquote arousal problem and that's the way that I've got to deal with it. I mean, a lot of people really do think that way. And it makes sense to think that way because you're saying the dog is capable of doing this behavior. I've seen it. How come he can't do it here? When I took it out of context and worked on his start line stay at home, Felix's start line stay at home, he didn't break. He 100% remembered how to do it. All he had told me 
was that he didn't know how to do a start line stay in a trial or in a seminar. That's what he was really saying. He wasn't saying he doesn't know how to do the behavior. He didn't know how to do it there under those circumstances. Because I went back and built up the reinforcement history, he then decided that he could. Um, and I'm just really pleased with it so far. I definitely um, anticipate that it will require maintenance. And so I do still reinforce it uh, very heavily. But I'm pleased with it. I think it's good. Now, what would have happened if I had just kept trialing and maybe started leaving the ring when he broke his stay or just stopped asking for a stay in the ring, um, etc.? Then I'm not helping myself, especially with leaving the ring in that scenario. The dog has um, is saying he doesn't have the reinforcement history to comply with this request. And then you're asking him to do it anyway and then punishing him when he can't. I think there's a lot of things you could break in that process. And with my little Felix, I think he would not have wanted to walk in the ring again um, if I had done that to him. So not a route that I would take in that particular scenario. So recently in trials, I've been just kind of wondering about Felix's emotional state, wondering if he has a good time in trials, um, wondering if he's enjoying that piece. Because when I train him in my backyard, he is a total fireball, 100% on, um, really, really, really loves the game. And when I take him to a trial, there's a lot of people. He really likes people. There's a lot of dogs. He really likes other dogs. He's um, he's what we would call, he's very environmental, basically. Um, we get in the ring and he's focused. He's on me, he's with me, he looks good, but he isn't as fast or as intense as he is at home. And so I just, I just had questions um, about his enjoyment of the game in that context. Um, had questions about whether or not, you know, his enjoyment of the game was good enough at this point to not have the toys on me, because that's definitely a big difference between practice and the trial. And so in the last few trials, I've been just kind of doing a lot of observing, doing a lot of data keeping, and just thinking about what my next moves are, are going to be with him. And something that I discovered was that he has some equipment training deficits, some of which I knew about, some of which I didn't, but that he proved um, to be true. And the the runs where he appeared the most overfaced, the runs where he appeared to be the most just not, you know, the way he is in the yard. We're definitely the runs with those pieces of equipment present. So if we do USDAA jumpers runs run, that's just jumps, sometimes tunnels. And he's fast and he's on and he's focused and he's doing so, so wonderful. The second a piece of contact equipment appears, and it could be any of the three, um, he changes a little bit. And over the course of the last regional I went to, his weave poles deteriorated as well. So he's clearly overfaced by contacts and weaves. Those pieces of equipment are the problem. They're producing a problem. He's saying my reinforcement history and my understanding are nowhere near as strong as they should be for you to be asking me to do this. So big mistake on my part. <laughs> um, 
but you know, that's what I saw. And so I made a choice. I made a decision. I said, okay, at the Colorado regional, I said, you will not be asked to do those things again in the ring until I'm certain that you can do them with total confidence, which means that I scratched him from a very expensive steeplechase run at my local regional this last weekend. Um, I hadn't realized I had entered him in steeplechase round one. Uh, I'm not surprised that I did, but I just kind of forgot about it. He was entered in some advanced jumpers and snooker classes, which we were really lucky. The snooker classes didn't have any contacts in them. Um, And so we ran those courses and he ran them really nicely, really well. And... I looked and I said, wow, he's entered in steeplechase, which happens to have an A-frame and two sets of weeples in it. And, you know, it was a more expensive run than normal. Um, It was 35 bucks. And I said, he should not run this. That is the rule that I set forward. And I texted uh, Casey, my friend, and I said, tell me I'm doing the right thing here. Because, you know, we could just go out there and try our best, etc. And everybody here is saying, oh, you can do it, you can do it, or you can just do a looping out, or you, you don't have to scratch, you don't have to scratch. And I'm going, no, I have this conversation with my clients all the time. All the time I say to them, what are you going to gain by running? And what could you lose by running? And what are you going to gain or what are you going to lose by scratching? What I lose by scratching is 35 bucks. What I lose by running is potentially more of this dog's confidence, which does not have a dollar value assigned to it. So I scratched. Um, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> That's why we're talking about it here. That was not easy for me to do. Um, I tell everybody these moments are going to happen. When you make training decisions, you will sometimes have an eight-hour day at work and then sit in traffic and then drive an hour and a half to dog class and get there and have a dog that is mentally incapable of training that day. That happens a lot in both my worked up and my hidden potential programs. And I say to those people, you need to make the decision before you even get in the car to go to class that if the dog says, I can't do it today, you say, okay, sweetie, thanks for trying, and you get in the car and you go home. And I do know how hard that is. And this was hard for me, but I did it. And I feel good about it. And I'm happy I did it because I didn't break anything. I'm out a little bit of money. That's okay. So what am I going to do with Felix? I've got some big training plans for him. I would like to bring him back out um, in everything later this fall. uh, Or I'm sorry, early fall, late summer. Um... He's doing so great in the classes that are absent of those pieces of equipment. So he's, I think, he may even after this weekend be in Masters Jumpers. I'm not sure in uh, USDAA, but jumpers and snooker and um, things where we can make stuff up. He's, He's doing wonderful, but I'd like him to be able to run in everything and run in everything with confidence. So kind of putting a pin in competitive stuff. I love that USDAA is offering the miscellaneous classes now. Um, So the clubs can offer miscellaneous where you can walk in, you can use a toy, you can do a lot of reinforcing. And I did that twice um, this past weekend at the regional. And 
so I'll be doing that kind of thing so I can be using my toy, which I'm going to talk about why in a minute, but his competition stuff is really paused for right now, and I think that's best for him. I think that's best for me with him. So I've got some big training plans, like I said, um, and hoping to bring him out maybe in August, um, but he has his first kind of test of that training will be in June at a seminar. So he's going to go to a seminar. We're going to see where we are, see where he is with his confidence, and then uh, hopefully retest somewhere in August to kind of see where he where he is. Particularly with weave poles, because weave poles are one of his concerns, which at some point I'll do a podcast series on just his weave pole training, but I don't think I'm ready to yet because I don't think the I think I don't think the case is closed yet, obviously, and I want to talk about um, resolution and not just problems on this podcast. So because weave pulls are one of his struggles, he has struggled with them from the beginning. Um, 100% this is about me. This isn't about any shortcomings of his. I really thought I had weave pull training figured out. I had taught it to a whole lot of people with a whole lot of variety of different dogs. I had personally, with my own hands, taught um, three drastically different breeds of dog. And um, I had a good handle on it. And then I just, if you're a trainer and you have the audacity to say that you have a good handle on something, I just promise you the universe will hand you a dog that proves you wrong. I think that's just how this goes. I think that's Murphy's law of dog training is that if you think you're good at something, the you'll fall in love with a puppy or a dog that will prove to you exactly what you don't know. And so that's what's happened with weave pulls with Felix. And it's a work in progress. The good news is um, I feel comfortable with what I need to do. I don't feel that I'm questioning what I need to do. I just need to do it, and I um, have a lot of plans for fixing it. Weave poles cause people a lot of problems because they expect their young dogs to not be able to do them well. So they get into the trial, and they expect to have to repeat weave poles two or three times on each run with their novice dogs, and this is... It's not faulted in novice or starters, um, AKC or USDAA, respectively. And so people just think, it's okay, I'll try it multiple, multiple times. I don't want to do that. I don't want to need to do that. I want to keep running. I don't want my dog to learn that he has to hit the pole, the poles on the first try in training in trials. I want him to learn that in training, because in training, I have positive reinforcement in my back pocket. I can utilize positive reinforcement to teach my dog anything I need to teach him in training. In a trial in a competition environment, I don't. Therefore. If I'm changing a behavior, if I'm getting a behavior in competition, I'm using a different quadrant. So in the case of weave poles, I think people are often utilizing without, maybe without knowing it, um, a negative reinforcement procedure to make sure the dog gets them right. And it's basically, you bother them, you make them try again, 
until they get it right. And as soon as they get it right, you back off and you let them keep running the course. That's a negative reinforcement procedure because what happens is they turn off your nagging by getting the answer right. Is there anything wrong with that? Not inherently. I don't think it's evil. The problem is that there's yucky feelings associated with it. There's frustration, um, maybe anger, maybe, um, you know, I don't know, all of the yucky feelings that come along with needing to turn off something annoying. Do you like that your car beeps at you until you turn on the seatbelt? No, it's effective. It's not evil, but you don't like it. And you might cuss out your car when it happens, or that could just be me. Um, and so, and that's you with your weave poles. If you make them try, try again until they get it right, which is just as a sidebar why that shouldn't be how you're training it either um, in training. So that's why I don't want you to work through it in a trial. And that's why I'm not going to work through it with Felix in a trial. I'm not going to repeat them. He's either going to get them or he's not. And I'm going to take data and I'm going to keep information. And I'm going to make sure that he's getting them most of the time and that the tails are, the, the tails, the scales are not tipping um, in a way that doesn't work for me there. Because the quadrants at play always do actually matter. So the fact that we don't have access to our classic reinforcers out there in the ring means that if we think we're training in the ring, we very well may be, and I would say we're teaching all the time, they're learning all the time, but we're not building behavior with positive reinforcement in the ring. I don't care if you're praising, I don't, I don't care what you're doing. Um, you're not delivering that cookie, delivering that toy that the dog expects when they get it right in training. And that stuff does matter. And true confession, when I first entered Felix, um, I instinctively automatically put him back in the weave poles if he missed them or also put him over back over a jump if he went around it. And I saw his attitude deteriorate because his heart is on his sleeve. You can just read this dog's emotions so easily and so well. He's running with his tail and his ears up and a smile on his face. And the second I stop and turn and go, oh, oh, do this again, he flattens. He says, oh, no, I did it wrong. And it's so sad. So I just, I said, all right, that's punishing enough for me that I'm going to not do it anymore. And that's going to be best for both of us. So I don't make him finish weave pulls. I don't make him repeat weave pulls. I don't make him repeat jumps. If I, if you see me do it, it was a mistake because it's an instinct because I have been doing agility for almost 20 years and that's how I learned to do it. <laughs> and I'm trying to unlearn right now. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I think what's really important to just kind of reiterate here is that our problems are not solved in the ring. They're never solved in the ring. Our problems are solved in training because your only option in the ring really is to punish out the behaviors you don't like or to try to produce those behaviors through negative reinforcement. And your problems are not solved with... Um, your problems might be solved with mileage. I think people talk about this a lot as far as the dog needs ring time, the dog needs miles. They need reinforcement history. So they need that kind of mileage. So I'm gonna say they need training miles, not show miles, not trial mileage. Our young dogs do need mileage, but they need positive reinforcement mileage. They need reinforcement history for obstacles, start lane stays, responsiveness to handlers. They don't need ring time. I think it's a big myth that they need ring time. 
um, the mistake I've made here with Felix, which is a direct result of my kind of insane travel and work schedule. It turns out that if you're on a different continent from your dog, it's a little bit hard to train them. Um, but really not, not a good enough excuse because I'm, I also filled out the entry forms for him. So the mistake I've made here is I've let my trial miles catch up to my training miles in a dog that's young. And so we're going back to the drawing board. We're going back to square one, um, building. I've got training plans for all three pieces of contact equipment. They're all different. I've got a training plan for my weave poles. Um, and we're going to figure it out. I even ordered a shiny new training journal for him to make sure that I track data. Um, I think that's a good antecedent arrangement for humans to keep good records is to have a pretty place to keep them. So, or it is for me at least. So we're going to do that. And I'm excited about what his future holds. I really am. I am excited to get serious about him. He's a really nice dog. He deserves me to train him. And I'm sure that your dog is a really nice dog and deserves for you to be training her. And putting the miles um, on the dog in training where you can positively reinforce things as opposed to in trials where you can't, where you don't have a lot of options as far as communication about what you want from the dog in the future. So... Talk to me over on the Facebook page, the Cog Dog Radio Facebook page, about struggles you're facing with your young dog right now. And let's have a discussion. Let's talk about whether we can solve these problems in the ring or not. And how, you know, maybe a taking break, taking a break and stepping back and focusing on your training um, just might be the right answer. Thanks for listening to Cog Dog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to cogdogradio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the Cogdog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training.